Good morning. It's nice to see all of you. If you have a Bible, would you please join me in John 15? If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one in your hands. Raise it. We'll get it to you. Feel free to keep it or leave it on the seat when you leave this morning. Um, we will have a Christmas message on Christmas morning and a Christmas Eve message on Christmas Eve. Uh, but today, we are continuing following Jesus in the Gospel of John. Um, we are in John 15, 18 through 16, 4. And if you are taking notes this morning, the message is entitled, Expect Hatred from the World. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis has referred to the incarnation of Jesus, when we think about Christmas, C.S. Lewis has referred to the Incarnation as an invasion into enemy-occupied territory. So in that sense, this passage we're going to look at today is Christmassy because it explains the opposition that Jesus faced when Herod uh, killed the babies and all the other things that Jesus faced, not only in his birth, but across his life. So with that, I'm going to read the whole text this morning. If you would join me in verse 18, down to 16.4. I'm going to read it, pray, and we'll jump into the word this morning. Jesus uh, is continuing to speak. He has just finished speaking about him being the true vine and the Father pruning branches to bear more fruit. And in verse 18, Jesus continues by saying, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But... All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now... They have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness Because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember That I told them to you. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. 
Father, you have, through your Son, set before us a, a cloudy text, Lord. Not because it's necessarily hard to understand, but because the news that Jesus gives to the apostles and all of his disciples, the hatred of the world and persecution and even death for the sake of Christ, is not a plan that we would write into your gospel if you'd placed us in charge. It's not something that we would expect, and also many of us comfortably here in the West don't even see or hear about, even though it's pervasive right now today in this world. And so, Lord, this passage that Jesus preaches begs many questions, and we, we need your mind, we need your spirit to illuminate your word, and we need faith gifted to us to believe and receive all that is said, and that we would be emboldened, we would be humbled, we would be courageous, clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who lived died for our sins, and rose in our place. So Lord, this morning, would you please accomplish your purposes in, with your word in each of our lives and our life corporately? To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, there is a sober mood to our passage this morning. As Jesus, in this farewell discourse in this upper room, Judas has left to betray Jesus. Their feet have been cleaned by him. Jesus is now speaking to these men, his apostles. And history tells us that all the apostles, except perhaps John, were all martyred for their faith and following of Jesus. Thomas, history tells us, was run through with the spears of four soldiers. Andrew was crucified. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned, then clubbed to death. Uh, the other James was simply killed. We don't know how. Matthias, by burning. John, boiled, then banished. Paul, beheaded. And Peter, crucified upside down because he did not think himself worthy to be crucified right side up as his Savior had been. We could turn to the book of Acts and see how persecution broke out in different ways, especially through Saul, who was also named Paul and became the one who beheaded for Jesus. We could look to the early centuries of the church down through the history and ages, even looking at outlets such as Voice of the Martyrs today to discover that there are more Christians alive and persecuted today right now for their allegiance to Jesus than ever before. The church father, Tertullian, right around the early 200s, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Indeed, we worship and serve a suffering Savior. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus tells us the road to follow him is narrow. It's not easy, it's difficult, it's hard. 
And Jesus calls us to lose our own lives to gain it in him. Jesus calls us to bear our own cross and follow him. And the question I have, and maybe you have, is, is why? God, in his infinite and perfect wisdom, knowing all possible worlds and plans, God has deemed wise and right to maximize his glory and our gospel joy and others' gospel good by creating a world in which God suffers, so to speak. That Jesus dies on the cross for our sins and that we would follow him in the same. Why is this God's plan? <coughs> Excuse me. And maybe this morning you're sitting here and people have been talking to you about Jesus. You're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're considering him. And you may not have considered or counted the cost. And maybe you're a believer who has not necessarily counted the cost, nor ever wondered why Christians, of all people, of all times, of all places, why Christians, us, our brothers and sisters, that we are the most persecuted people across human history. Why? The New Testament has much to say about persecution. But today, here in John 15, Jesus, as he prepares to be betrayed, go to Gethsemane, be captured and legally tried, beaten, brutalized, and crucified for our sins, Jesus, right here in John 15, gives us one of the clearest explanations as well as one of our strongest hopes about why the world hates Jesus and us and our hope and perseverance in persecution. If you're taking notes today, there's two points. First one is the vast majority of the message. Second one is brief. Point number one, we learn from John 15, Jesus teaches, expect hatred from the world, so hope in Christ. And from there, we'll move into verses 26 to the end of our passage. Jesus also teaches, expect help from the Holy Spirit, so hope in Christ. Let's, let's move to that first point. If you would look at, with me at verses 18 to 21. Expect hatred from the world, so hope in Christ. Listen again to what Jesus says, verse 18. If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If you've been following along in this upper room discourse, this, this farewell, this goodbye by Jesus, you may notice the stark contrast of the words this week from the words last week. Indeed, right here in 1518 and following almost divides what Jesus is giving in this farewell discourse in half. So from the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus uh, 
taking off his outer garment, putting on the towel, washing the disciples' feet, um, laying down his life for his friends. Uh, the focus has been God's love for his people. His people's love, our love for God in Christ, and our love for one another. It's one of the hallmark and high points of Jesus being the true vine that we spent a number of weeks looking at. But now there's a change. The tone changes. The language changes. The, the word love, which was repeated so often, is now replaced with the word hate. And what's taking place in this, in this shift is now Jesus is focusing on the world's relationship to the disciples and vice versa versus God's relationship with the disciples and vice versa. So in our passage, in verses 19 and 20 and 21, when Jesus is being repetitive and saying, you are not of this world, what does he mean? Because the Gospel of John uses the word world many times and in a couple different ways. So here, when Jesus says that we, not just the apostles, but all of us who call Jesus our Lord and Savior, for us not to be out of this, of this world means... Not only that we are new creation in Christ, we are the future new creation broken into the present and we live with a foot in this age and the next as it were. Not only are we of the new creation, but to be not of this world means that our allegiance and our life belong to Jesus. We've bowed the knee to him. We've given him our sins. He's taken them to the cross. His blood has washed us clean. And he has now made us a kingdom of priests. But when Jesus refers to the world, which we are not of, he is speaking of all that is in the world that is in opposition to Jesus. The individual hearts, you and me, before Jesus saved us. Cultures at the family level, at the town level, at the state level, and more. Philosophies, political structures, nation states, globalism, anything and everything that resists or rejects Jesus as the saving king is the world in opposition to him. So he's not talking about rocks and trees and snow, the world is talking about a world system in opposition to Jesus. And at the outset, here's what we need to hear. Jesus makes clear in verse 18 and following that the world's hatred towards the church and the persecution of the church is ultimately hatred and persecution of Jesus. Do you remember that scene in Acts? Before Paul got saved, also named Saul. And he's going in homes and dragging off people and putting them in prison and beating them and even seeing some killed. And he's now on, uh, he's moving into a new town and Jesus knocks him down. And what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So anything that we face, any opposition that you face, any, any even hint of opposition that your allegiance to Jesus is not for you to ultimately take it personally, it's personally against Christ, though it is personal. So verse 18 makes clear that the reason the world hates the church and Christians is it hates Jesus first. But again, the question is, why? 
Why of all possible worlds is it this way? Why is it that the very word gospel means good news? We are good news ambassadors of a very good king who has the best message that could ever be told and spoken and shouted in the world that there is a God who has come down to rescue us from his wrath against us. And he took the wrath against us, against himself on the cross. And all the sins and problems and sorrows and brokenness and more, whatever adjective you use, all of our rebellion against him, he has taken upon himself on the cross and he died to wash away those sins, to make us new creation, to restore us to himself. He died, was buried in our place, rose for our justification, and now promises new creation, eternal life with him, the best news there ever was, and people hate it. Why? How could you possibly reject that message? Well, the question is, why did you reject it? I rejected it until I was 21. And then it wasn't something in me that I changed of myself. I didn't get smarter. It's hard to do. Jesus did something to me. Jesus did something to me. He saved me. And he did the same for you. But there are multitudes of people who still hear this message and say, no thanks. I don't want that. And the question is, why? What is going on? Something is happening in the roots of the human heart. And so for that, to understand Jesus' words here, we need to take a step back and consider the broad sweep of redemptive history. From the beginning, talking about Genesis, God has revealed that this has been so. What do I mean? Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve have fallen. They have embraced sin. They were seduced by Satan to believe that they could become their own gods, which sounded better than having God be God. And they ate the fruit. They disobeyed the Lord. The Lord shows up. He calls them to account. And in Genesis 3.15, the devil is there, and Adam and Eve, and God is, is punishing uh, the devil, and he is putting the curse on creation. In Genesis 3.15, listen to what God says to the serpent. God says, I will put enmity. It's one of the strongest words in the English language to describe hatred, feuding, strife between two parties. God says to the devil, I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring or seed, it's a collective noun, it means many. Between your children, Satan, and her offspring, her seed, her children, then he gets singular. He, a son is coming. A son will bruise your head, Satan, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. What this verse is, is the first promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible that unleashes the unfolding of redemptive history by many farther steps. And God's going to unfold this plan. The text makes clear that God doesn't send Jesus right away. He's not the firstborn son to Eve. We have to wait until Mary. And this text makes clear, it's how you understand the whole Bible. It makes clear that God is declaring that human history 
will fundamentally be divided and explained as enmity or hostility or conflict between two seeds, two offspring, two families, two um, patronages, as it were. Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. And whose seed you are is not a matter of biology, it's spiritual, as Cain and Abel show. Both born of Eve, and Cain kills Abel. Cain is the seed of the serpent. And this conflict comes down to, and this is, comes down to the human heart. It was in Adam and Eve, and all of us who have come from them, our first mother and father, the conflict comes down to this. Who will be God? Who's going to be God? Either God will be God, or God's rebellious image bearers will try to ordain themselves as God. Will God's word rule and give life, or will man's word rule and ultimately take life? When Jesus says back in our text, in verse 25, they hated me without cause. Jesus is exposing the insanity and mental illness that sin is. It puts us out of our mind. Sin in me and in you and in all of humanity, sin wants to de-God God and Godify ourselves. We don't want to be in submission to him. And we don't think that his good word gives us life. Sin tricks us to think that the goodness of God is actually bad and he's withholding from us and we can know better than, than him. You see, there's a fundamental battle among humanity as Christ steps into truly God, truly man in the incarnation and walks off the pages of Scripture and into this world. It's either going to be self-law or Christ's law. Self-law is autonomy or Christonomy. Christ's law or self-law. One word will rule... And so when Jesus says they hated me without cause, he's citing a couple of psalms here. And he is pointing out that there is no cause to truly hate Jesus. He has done no wrong. He is perfect in all of his attributes. He came as the humble, suffering servant in our place. And yet, with all the goodness that he did, all the signs and miracles he performed, walking on water, feeding the multitudes, healing the deaf and blind and lame and more, and all that he did, and they said, we hate you for it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is within himself all that is perfectly and eternally good, right, true, and beautiful. And Jesus was the embodiment of that goodness, rightness, trueness, and beauty. You see, sin, since the garden, is parasitic and it's a perversion. Meaning sin can't create anything. Sin is like a leech that latches onto the truth and beauty of God's good created world. And then sin takes God's creative life-giving law word and his world and distorts and denies it. And more than that, sin, as I said, wants to assassinate God. Or try to pretend that he is not there. 
But he is there and he is still speaking in his word. And sin is what we are apart from Christ. Listen, listen to how this is blown up and explained in Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. If you would join me there, I want your eyes to see these words. I want you to be familiar in your own Bible where this is and what it says. In Psalm 2, God provides a summary statement, a blown-up cosmic perspective that explains this world. And so when Jesus is looking at the apostles and he says, the world hates you, the world will persecute you, and the world's going to kill you thinking that they're serving God, Psalm 2, all 12 verses are an explanation. Listen to what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. So pause for a second. Notice who's gathered together. Everybody. It says nations, peoples, kings, and rulers. So from nations, we're looking at the different ethne, the different ethnic groups, people groups. We're looking at individuals and cultures. We're looking at kings and rulers, presidents and prime ministers, all leaders and rulers, everyone from the greatest to the least, plot in vain. And they take counsel together. They don't take counsel from God's word. They they take counsel together against the Lord and against his Do you see that word anointed? Mashiach, Messiah, or in Greek, Christ. And here's what the world says. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 2. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. At heart, at root, what pervades everything that we see on the surface is a human desire at the people, national, kingly level to burst Yahweh and the Christ's bonds apart. The world views God's views as bondage. What God says they view as bonds that bind them, that God is a killjoy rather than a give joy, And that what God says does not lead to human flourishing and that God is not right. So let us cast their cords from us. Come, world, let's band together and let's do all that we can to burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4. Here's what God says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It it actually means that he mocks them for their futility. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. What's God going to say? God, it says, is going to speak to them in wrath. He has fury What is God going to say to a world in rebellion against him? Here's what God said. Here's how God is going to terrify the world. Verse 6. 
As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's God's response. How does God terrify the world? There is a true king who is the king of kings and lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth, as Revelation 1 says. God is going to set a king on Zion and his holy hill, and that king is going to be the source of God's terror, fury, and wrath against the nations who want to burst their bonds apart. Verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, so the voice changes. Now the Messiah, the Christ, is speaking. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations, those who are raging, your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. You know when that happened? That's Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. Psalm 2.9 continues of the Christ. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Repent. Kiss the Son, verse 12, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's the upper room. Jesus is looking at the disciples. And their hearts have been troubled. And so he spent chapters 13, 14, and the first half of 15 comforting their hearts. And now, what would it have been like to be one of the guys sitting here hearing, they're going to put you out of the synagogue. And they're going to kill you. But the reason they're doing it is because they hated me without a cause. And therefore they're hating you without cause. Simply because you're a follower of me. And by extension, in the history of the church, this is what he says to all of us. The world wants to burst the bonds of Jesus apart and cast away his cords. But Jesus is not a kill joy. He is a give joy. You know, it's interesting, you hear how stark these words, these words are from Jesus. The world hates you, you're not of the world, that's why they hate you, and persecution, and these, these gloomy, difficult words that we wouldn't want to put in the Bible if we were in charge of writing the Bible, but it's interesting, on a personal level, these descriptions of sin can seem almost stark to our experience. We have unbelieving family members, unbelieving friends and co-workers, in many cases we feel loved by them, and are loved by them. And sometimes it seems almost better than Christians love us. But when Jesus comes up, when Jesus comes up in his regal command for confession of sin, renouncing of sin, agreeing with Jesus on all that Jesus says, Jesus' promise extended of either eternal wrath or eternal life, and that you can receive it by grace through faith, repent and believe, then hostility arises. When you begin to meddle, even in your loved one's relationships and decisions that they're making, and, and you represent Christ and his word, it's then that the hostility arises. And the hostility is not primarily about you, it's about Jesus. 
that explains why many of us, whether you're a grandparent or a parent or a friend, that someone that you're close with, believer, even unbeliever, but you have a relationship with them, they know what you stand for, Jesus. And Jesus' ways for the world can't be improved upon. But when they're moving away from Jesus and you represent Jesus and move towards them, that's why they don't want to hear what you have to say. That's why they avoid you. That's why they reject you and more. Because it's a rejection of Jesus. And this is undeniable at the national and globalist levels. Why? The kings of the earth want to burst bonds, God's bonds, apart. The idea of don't steal. Honor your mother and father. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Worship the only one God and more. Don't look lustfully upon others. Whether you go to the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, the world wants to burst those bonds apart. God's moral and kingly demands of the world are not viewed as life-giving, but life-taking. Please understand that in this pluralistic, championing society that we live, the word pluralism is a sugar-coated redefinition of what pluralism is, polytheism. Polytheism. There is no neutral ground. You either kiss the sun or you do not. There's no neutral ground. A God is always ruling. The question is, which one? Someone will always be ruling. Will they be the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman? Will they be someone who is at enmity with God or in worshipful submission to God? John chapter 3. If you join me in John chapter 3, you, you may be familiar with these first verses, but, but it's, it's the connections in John 3 with John 15 and the world hating and persecuting that we begin to understand why. John 3, verses 16 to 21. And I want you to note the words of love and hate and how they're contrasted. Jesus says in John 3, 16, maybe you know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And here's the contrast. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Did you hear the contrast? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only begotten son, 
so that people should not perish but have eternal life. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It's why back in John 1, when it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, it means that the light tries to ex- the darkness tries to extinguish the light. So in John 15, when Jesus goes on here about how they uh, hate the Father and don't know the Father, they hate Jesus and don't know Jesus, and they hate Christians and don't know Christians, the expectation of being hated by the world is because you are a mirror. Did you, did you get those points put together? What do I mean? You see, what happens with the Christian, we Christians are not perfect, only Jesus is perfect. We have remaining sin, we have remaining folly. Nonetheless, Jesus is in us as we abide in him and he bears fruit through us. And our works are carried out in Christ. It's our attitudes, the fruit of the Spirit. It's our actions like Jesus. And what happens is our Christ-like attitudes, Christ-like actions are like a flashlight on the one hand, the light that exposes, and a mirror on the other. Not because we're super special. It's because Jesus is special. And we want to be like him. We become emblems of impending judgment unless people repent of their rebellion and our lives reflect the truths. So listen, here's why we are increasingly experiencing hatred from the world. There's a a guy by the name of Aaron Wren, and he's kind of a social philosopher. He studies the impact and relationship of Christianity and culture. And he has done very good work, I think it's convincing, to say that when you study at least the West, the Western world, especially in the American West, there are periods of history that you can plot between a positive world, a neutral world, and a negative world. Meaning, the way unbelievers viewed believers and related to them has changed. In the positive world... Uh, Christian values, the cultural hegemony, was embraced by everybody. That there were values, whether or not you actually believe the Bible, you believe that the Bible's morals were the way how the world should work. And so there was positive social capital that you could have as a politician especially, or as a businessman or something along those lines to say that you were a Christian and you belonged to a certain church. But then he argues that around 1994 to 2012 was a neutral world. You really didn't get good standing in the, in, in the world, uh, in the West, by being a believer. But since 2012 and the Obergefell decision of same-sex marriage and on, we have entered an increasingly hostile negative world where to claim Christ and Christ's ways for the world and to say that what Jesus says is how life works best that all of us are sinners who need to repent and bow the knee to Jesus regardless of your unique species of sin, that we are now in a negative world, that if you bring any of Jesus' morals to the forefront, social media, um, Hollywood, New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, that you will be canceled 
branded a bigot, probably a racist, or any other whatever epithet's going to be said about a Christian because you're simply saying, I believe Jesus. Here's what we need to understand. The negative world is getting more negative. There is now a cost that is greater for the first time there's ever been in the West for claiming Jesus and truly wanting to follow him. Of being a person who repents of sin when you see it and following Jesus, here's the point about Jesus saying when the world hates you. Listen, Jesus alone defines what it means to be human. But the world wants to burst those bonds apart. Jesus alone defines what male and female is, but the world wants to burst those bonds apart. Jesus alone defines what marriage is, but the world wants to burst those bonds apart. Jesus alone defines what sexuality is and how it is to be expressed, but the world wants to burst those bonds apart. Jesus alone defined what life is, when it begins and when it ends, but the world wants to burst those bonds apart. Jesus alone defines what authority and submission structures are in the world, and the world wants to burst those bonds apart. Jesus alone defines what ethnicity is and what it is for and how it glorifies him. But the world wants to burst those bonds apart and set us against each other. Jesus alone defines what the rulership of kings is. But the world wants to burst those bonds apart. Jesus alone defines what's wrong with the world and what will make it right. Namely, his blood on the cross and his resurrection from the grave but the world wants to burst those bonds apart. Understand that to be a follower of Jesus means that there's people, there's darkness who hates the light and says, I don't want your sexual ethic, your marriage ethic. I don't want your definition of humanity being the image bearer of God. None of those things. And so at the personal level, certainly the social media level, at the globalist levels, and everywhere in between, you're either submitted to Christ or exalting yourself. And so persecution means we will be harassed for Jesus, hated for Jesus, possibly even hurt for Jesus, as many of our brothers and sisters are around the world, because our loving allegiance to King Jesus. You hear me say... At the end of every service, go in the gospel, pray for revival. This is why. Understand that revival cannot be manufactured by any person. That's nonsense. We don't host revivals. A revival is a sovereign work of God's spirit where he takes sleepy Christians with cold love and wakens us up with a fervent burning love for Jesus and lost neighbors. And at the same time in those rivals, as Christians get more Christian in very good ways, our unbelieving friends and family come to Jesus and get saved, and we all get hungry for the Bible, and all get hungry for, the, for prayer, and we gather together, and our joy is to listen to the word preached, pray that word back to him, and sing it. It's got to be a work for Christ. And if there was ever a time in human society, where insanity and mental illness is on the forefront, it's what we're experiencing right now as the world seeks to burst God's bonds apart. And the only thing that can change it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of Christ working with that very gospel. 
And so we are a humble people who, like the Good Samaritan, go to friends who've mutilated their bodies because they've been believed the lies of the culture. Children who have been confused about what it means to be human and marriage and sex and life and death and authority and submission, ethnicity and politics and wrong and right in the world and sin and more, you have the answer and his name is Jesus. And guess what? We were all there too. We're not the self-righteous older brother, at least we shouldn't be. And if we see that we are, we ought to repent of that. You see, we are armed with this loving message to go out and put that towel in our waist and to serve other people and to preach Jesus to them that there is a true way. You can be rescued from your guilt and shame that your sin incurs. Jesus has taken it for you and from you on the cross. And all the stuff the world is telling you about how to live, only Jesus can tell you how to live. He invented life. He knows how it works best. And if you follow him, find that you'll not only glorify God, but you'll flourish in this world. And so when I say pray for revival, it's recognizing that this world is so crazy that Jesus alone is sane, and he puts us all in his right mind with the gospel. That's what I mean by pray for revival. revival. Pray that God does something where only he can get the credit for it, and his gospel can get the credit for it, none of us and no one else. The world will hate us without cause. And yet, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And that's the message that we are armed with to go out and to love others with grace. So church, expect hatred from the world, but hope in Christ. And more than that, expect help from the Holy Spirit, so keep hoping in Christ. Point number two, and it's brief. Verse 26. But when the Helper comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. You see, I think this news, their hearts are troubled, our hearts are troubled, and then Jesus says, you're probably going to get killed for me. I don't want to hear that. And I'm certain that they don't want to hear that. That incites fear. It causes me to not trust the Lord, but look at the gift and hope and grace and empowerment that Jesus promises the helper. The third person of the Trinity, the spirit of truth. And we'll see this more in coming weeks, but understand this. Jesus does not leave us alone in being hated and persecuted by the world. Jesus does not leave us alone when he ascends into heaven. God's beauty gospel plan is a part of the resurrection of Christ and his ascension is to pour out the Spirit upon us so that the Spirit of God would indwell us for eternity. The gift and ministry of the Holy Spirit is one of the ways Jesus promises to never leave us and never forsake us. And the connection here is that the Spirit bears witness through the apostles, through us. One of the amazing things, if you've read about uh, martyrdom and persecution in church history, it is remarkable the, the, the tear-soaked, trembling-knee courage that our brothers and sisters have had dying for Jesus 
and not recanting of his gospel. Do you know why? Because the spirit of truth, the helper, empowered them. So friends, when, when Jesus bring, brings you before grandchildren and children and co-workers and professors and, and the city council and the sheriff or whatever it is, Understand that we can trust the Spirit of God to help us in those moments of weakness because we don't trust ourselves. We trust Jesus. And we don't trust our ingenuity in arguing. We trust the gospel. The Spirit is our helper, which means then we can hope in Christ and hope in His Spirit and the Word of God. Because the Word of God, the gospel of God, is the power of God for salvation. It is the church that will break down the gates of Hades. Our hope in Christ is bound up in our hope in the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent him to help you, to keep you, to guard you, to preserve you, to give you Christ's word for you to bear witness of Jesus in a hostile world. Your hope as a believer is bound up in the reality that Jesus has already won. The gospel will triumph. What did Jesus say on the cross? Well, many things, but he did say, it is finished. The greatest, most unexpected military victory was the cross when he bruised or crushed Satan's head when that dagger went into the earth. The grace of God has been bringing people like you and me from darkness to light and death to life since the beginning, which means the gospel only gives us hope, not defeatism. The gospel will prevail. And 100% of the people for whom Jesus died will be saved. And so we never give up and we don't lose hope because the spirit of truth empowers us and preserves us even through persecution, even if it means giving our lives for Christ who already gave his life for yours. I've said these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, 16.2. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You may be considering Christ. A strange message to hear where Jesus is plainly saying that you hate him. And if you were like me before I got saved at 21, I didn't think that I hated Jesus. But it's really not important about how I define things or what I think and feel. It's important how Jesus defines things and how he thinks and feels. And my indifference and not caring about Jesus is a species of hatred towards him. And what I want you to hear if you don't know Jesus is that Jesus has already come. He's already won. He's already laid down his life for our sins. He's already risen from the grave. And that can be yours. Confess, repent, and be saved. Cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me. I am yours. Save me. Lord, I, I believe. Help my unbelief. Say that to him. And find that your wrath, or rather his wrath due against you, is placed on him. And this life, a life that you need to take count of, to join Jesus in his bride and body, so that the world would now hate you. That's a weird invitation, but there's good news baked into it. 
And for those of us who follow Jesus, listen to these words about the increasing hardship we should not be surprised to see here in the West. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to purify you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's a proof of your salvation, your sonship, because you're standing for Jesus at great cost. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, there is good news and the good news is treasure. And that treasure is on a narrow and difficult path. It's a heavy treasure because it includes a cross. It's a serving treasure because it comes with a toweled waist and rolled up sleeves. And it's a dying treasure in the sense that we lay down our lives so that others can have life. Because greater love has no one than this, that they lay down his life for his friends. Jesus calls us friends. Church, let us not shrink back. But advance the grace of Jesus in his gospel. You are here right now, and you have not been brought home to heaven because there's plans for your life for gospel work to do. To help others grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and meet the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So church, let's persevere and help each other hold on to that hope of Christ. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the gift. It's very strange to say that. We thank you for the gift that in your, of all possible worlds, you have made a world in which you were hated. And the hatred of the world is a black backdrop to shine the diamond of your love for the world, such that you gave Jesus for us. Lord, where there's unbelief, grant belief. Where there's sorrow, grant help. Where there is suffering, grant relief. And Lord, would you make us all find our joy in Jesus? Lord, we're also just mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted right now this day and pray that your spirit would be what you say your word is, the, their helper to sustain them and to preserve them, to cross that river into your arms. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Friends, let's stand to sing the song, and then Pastor Annie will come up and lead us to the Lord's table afterwards.